Hello, my friends. Today I do something a bit different. Instead of talking about the coronavirus today, I talk about the Spanish flu just over 100 years ago. And I ask the question, were our great-great-grandparents smarter at fighting that flu than we are at fighting this virus? Uh, I'd encourage you to become a Rebel News Plus subscriber because I've got so many old-timey photos I want to show you. Just great photos of different masks from 1918-19. And there's this sunlight hospital I want to show you. Obviously, if you're listening to this as a podcast, you'll use your own imagination. But if you had a subscription to Rebel News Plus, you could see the video. I show you things that just, they were riveting to me. I don't know. Maybe uh, you find them as interesting as I do. I think there's a lot we could have learned from the common sense of people 100 years ago. Okay. Um, by the way, if you want that subscription, it's eight bucks a month. Go to rebelnews.com and sign up right there. You can get a seven-day free trial, by the way, so there's no downside there. Okay, here's the podcast. Tonight, were our great-great-grandparents better at handling the Spanish flu pandemic 100 years ago? It's April 27th, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. The closest thing to a plague that ripped through Canada was the Spanish flu back in 1918-1919. You know, we name diseases after places they're from. It's not racist to call it the Spanish flu or to say Ebola, which is a river in Africa. I'm just telling you that because the Chinese Communist Party and its repeaters in the media party keep saying it's racist to call it the Wuhan virus or the China virus. Anyways, the Spanish flu was so deadly, about 50 million deaths worldwide. Soldiers coming home from the Great War cooped up in poorly ventilated ships crossing back the ocean. About half a million died from the Spanish flu in the United States and 50,000 here in Canada. And we only had a population of just over 8 million Canadians back then. So proportionately, that would be like more than 200,000 dead today. It looks like we're past the worst of the Chinese virus by now and the total death toll in Canada is just over 2,500. So I know it's incredible to say it, but the Spanish flu was nearly 100 times as deadly, or phrased another way, what we're going through for now, for whatever reason, is only 1% as deadly as that. Here's a public notice published in 1918 by the mayor of Kelowna, BC, one of the best places in the world, I might add, Notice is hereby given that in order to prevent the spread of Spanish influenza, all schools, public and private, churches, theaters, moving picture halls, pool rooms, and other places of amusement, and lodge meetings are to be closed until further notice. All public gatherings constituting uh, 10 or more uh, are uh, prohibited. D.W. Sutherland, Mayor, Kelowna, B.C., 19 October, 1919. Now, I don't think it worked, but it's like a time machine reading that, isn't it? <laughs> I wonder how long that went on for. How long did students go without school back then? I, I can't believe that Canada in 1918, 1919 would have tolerated bans on churches for long. But I noticed that there was none of this made-up idea of social distancing. I had never heard that phrase before last month, had you? 
and certainly not mass house arrest for every Canadian, which is basically what we're living under. You'll notice that in Kelowna there, they banned theaters and movies and pool halls, but not restaurants or businesses. They weren't crazy. We, we cleared out all of our hospitals these past months, making chronic cancer patients wait, making elective surgery wait. So we put people in pain and made their lives worse for a surge that never came. In the United States, where the president didn't sulk in his basement for a month in his pajamas like Justin Trudeau has, their military built emergency hospitals and convention centers and sailed massive Navy hospital ships to LA and New York. But thankfully, they were never needed. They were never used. We were worried that hospitals would look like war zones. <laughs> now they sort of look like sorority parties. I'm not mad at those nurses and orderlies and doctors across Canada, the United States, the UK, partying in hospitals, making little videos like that. I'm making my point. The hospitals are pretty much empty. You know, photography had just been born before the U.S. Civil War, so there are a few classic photos of the men and the carnage, you know, Abe Lincoln. It makes it much more real to see the photos than an ancient battle for which we only have paintings and stories. By the time 1918 came around, photography had advanced greatly. Cameras were common. Look at this handsome group. You don't see people dressing up like that unless they're going somewhere very special these days, do you? And everyone with a hat, I like that. That one woman in the middle doesn't seem to be wearing her mask right. It's not covering her nose. Don't tell the woman on the right she might throw her in jail. They're not practicing social distancing because they're all wearing masks, so they don't need to. They surely made their own masks or their masks were made locally. So there's no such thing as a mask shortage because they weren't trying to import them from China. People back in 1918, 1919 knew basic skills like how to sew, didn't they? This mask seems to cover just the nose, not the mouth. Not sure how that works. They look like a kind of bird, I think. <laughs> Here's a fellow making a fashion statement. That statement could be different things though. I'm a pirate, arr, or I'm dying, arr. Not sure which. You know, in Canada, people started making masks these past months including Aboriginal people making stylized masks with indigenous iconography. That sounds great. I'd like to get a cool mask like that. Stay safe, fly your flag of Aboriginal pride a bit, make some money for the community, have a quality product, not some junk from China. I really like the idea that there were some Aboriginal artists making masks. But the CBC literally published this article targeting the Aboriginal community lying to them, telling them that masks don't work. Trudeau's CBC state broadcaster said that. They lied. Of course they did. They were taking their cue from Theresa Tam. Masks um, have to be utilized appropriately too. Most people haven't learned how to use masks. So there's many practical aspects of this. So our advice right now is there is no need to use a mask for well people. Yeah, pretty sure that's not true. <laughs> uh, pretty sure everyone knows that's not true. Today, everyone knows it, and our great-great-grandparents would laugh at our stupidity for thinking otherwise. Here's some Seattle cops wearing masks in 1918, masks made for them by the local Red Cross. I'd trust the Red Cross over junk made in Chinese factories, wouldn't you? This photo is also from Seattle in 1918, wearing a mask, telling someone else he has to have a mask on to get on the trolley. I think maybe that's a staged photo to make the point, hey guys, bring a mask. Sounds like there were plenty of masks to go around, though. 
And people were making them themselves. Remember, that was an age where men had a handkerchief on them, and women did too. So making a mask wasn't actually that big of a deal. Here's a poster by the Alberta Board of Health in 1918. The bottom half is how to make a mask. Pretty simple instructions followed by apply over mouth and nose as shown in the picture. So yeah, our great-great-grandparents were smarter than Theresa Tam and the World Health Organization today. Let me read the top part uh, of the poster. Um, this disease is highly communicable. It may develop into a severe pneumonia. There's no medicine which will prevent it. Keep away from public meetings, theaters, and other places where crowds are assembled. Keep the mouth and nose covered while coughing or sneezing. When a member of the household becomes ill, place him in a room by himself. The room should be warm but well ventilated. The attendant should put on a mask before entering the room of those ill of the disease. So that's more sound advice right there in 1918 on a poster than Justin Trudeau's government gave to sick arrivals jetting in from China and Iran and Italy for months. For months there was nothing, and then there was just this one-line touchscreen question, have you been to Hubei province, China? And that's it, just come right on in. Thanks for touching the touchscreen. Here's a New Zealand health pamphlet from the Spanish flu. It's not a public health order. This is advice, suggestions by the local hospital board. I'll paraphrase it because there's too much to read. Go to bed directly when you feel symptoms. That's good advice. Go to bed in a room not occupied by a person who's well. Good advice. Take a drink of uh, any kind of uh, uh, as hot as possible. Take a light diet. Don't depress yourself by looking at the bad side. That's good advice. Remember the large majority of persons who take ill get well. That's good. Only one member of the family of the house should visit the patient's room. Don't allow people to come into your room. Look at this. If no doctor has prescribed for you, take ammoniated quinine in a half to a teaspoonful dose in plenty of water every four hours. Add one teaspoonful of boric acid or borax. That's pretty specific, isn't it? I'm going to come back to those points in a moment. So don't forget those. Uh, let me skip ahead. Don't go outdoors except into direct sunshine. Here's an outdoor sunshine treatment. The patients of the flu virus were laid in the fresh air, their faces exposed to the sun. I know that sounds like an old wives' tale, but no. Here's an excerpt from the American Journal of Public Health back in October 1918 and an editorial by the doctors called Weapons Against Influenza. That was the name of the article in the journal. So this is a scholarly journal. Believe it or not, they said the most effective remedy was sunshine. I'm talking about fighting the Spanish flu, which is an H1N1 virus. Let me read. The open-air treatment of Brooks was founded by, found by the Massachusetts State Health Department to be the most valuable factor in reducing mortality. Apparently, the fatality of hospital cases was reduced from 40% to about 13% by the treatment. An invaluable incident to this treatment is the fact that in the open air, the immunity of the nurses and physicians is enormously increased, leaving them to carry out the great amount of work confronting them. So that's pretty much the opposite of the orders of every politician and bureaucrat in Canada. Don't go to the park. We'll arrest you if you walk your dog. Or if you go out and get sunshine, stay in your house. Stay in the dark. And we can see the, uh, those cooped up in a closed space, like seniors' homes, is where so much of the deaths in Canada happen. That sunshine treatment. They had it right 100 years ago, didn't they? So wear masks. Self-quarantine if you're sick. 
Get sunshine and fresh air. By contrast, let me show you a clip from Calgary last week when a dozen police descended on a pastor who was feeding the homeless and they gave him a huge fine. This is not a vent. This is not your picnic in the neighborhood for the fun of it. We are providing necessities of life to those that you and your bosses refuse to provide. He's allowed to get back from you a little bit. Whoa, 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 whoa. On your eight feet, stand back. Okay? Or what? Stand You're going to f***ing threaten me and f***ing abuse me? Hey, guys. Do not do that. Tell him not to touch me. Six feet away for everybody. That's for everybody. Yeah, I don't think cops in 1918 would have pushed around pastors feeding the homeless. I think the cops might have actually helped feed the homeless. And the cops wouldn't have ticketed someone for feeding them. And if they were all high and mighty like that, they probably would have had the consistency to wear a mask themselves. What clownery. The Calgary cops were breathing on and being breathed on, but boy, were they ever going to give out tickets. I mentioned the advice from the New Zealand Hospital Board to take quinine water. You probably know that water by its commercial name, tonic water. It's got that bitter taste. People have a gin and tonic. It's a very certain taste. That's the quinine. If you can believe it, it's an anti-malaria medication. It's been taken for 150 years. Of course, when it's prescribed, it's often in pill form. One quinine-based medicine is called hydroxychloroquine. And wouldn't you know it? That's what Trump suggested taking in a tweet and in a press conference. And so incredible, the Trump derangement people immediately said, you're a fool. And they spent a month disparaging that medicine that they had never heard of before. I love this satirical article in the Babylon Bee about a liberal who was saved by hydroxychloroquine but wanted to die just to prove Trump wrong. Anyways, that was some advice a hundred years too. Take quinine. That's what they would have called hydroxychloroquine and, and bleach, actually. You saw that. Remember that recommendation of using boric acid or borax? They were mocking Trump for saying similar things, too. I swear, Trump should use reverse psychology one day, say something literally the opposite of what he wants, what he believes, and watch the media and the Democrats support his real position. And sunlight, Trump was talking about UV radiation and sunlight the other day, too. And boy, did they mock him. Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light, and I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that, too. Sounds interesting. We'll the right, folks who right. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs, so it'd be interesting to check that, so that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds, it sounds interesting to me. Oh, the media laughed and laughed and laughed at that one. <laughs> Donald Trump is so stupid. Imagine actually suggesting sunlight and fresh air and borax. Does he just make stuff up? <laughs> what an idiot. Yeah, no, actually, check out this video from a biosciences research group affiliated with Cedars-Sinai Hospitals. Take a look.
I don't know anything about that. Other than that seems to be what Trump was talking about, the catheter with UV light. He wasn't prescribing it. He, he said he was interested in learning more about it. He said it sounded hopeful. He said light helps. I wonder if those folks back in 1918 would have at least given it a shot, try to save some lives. Now, obviously, the 1918 virus killed many more Canadians than did the 2020 Chinese virus, almost 100 times more proportionally, as I showed. Why is that? Well, obviously, the virus back then was deadly, or obviously, we have better health care now, not only to deal with acute crises, but I think in general, I think people are healthier. I mean, we're fatter, for sure, but that's another way of saying we're not malnourished. Uh, a lot of chronic conditions that may have made people weaker back then aren't factors now. We can fix those things. To be candid, I, I think that the relatively low death toll today isn't a function of anything that public health care bureaucrats did or politicians did, and certainly not police telling people they can walk, can't walk their dogs in the park. But here's what's, what I also know. Our great-great-grandparents didn't use the excuse of the virus to send the country into a Great Depression or to arrest people for leaving their houses. See, did you find those photos and handbills from 1918, 1919 interesting? Those old-timey remedies? I did. I, I must have looked at 50 photos. Well, tomorrow, unless some urgent news breaks, I'm going to tell you the most incredible story that I think we can learn from of when the Black Death came to the French port of Marseille in 1720, the last city in Western Europe to have the plague. It's a terrifying story, but also some interesting lessons about quarantines and borders that we can learn from too. That's tomorrow. Stay with us for more with Mark Morano next. think the people in charge are near nervous enough. That's Planet of the Humans, a new movie presented by Michael Moore. I'm not 100% sure what that means. I think they're piggybacking on his name and credibility. He's one of the most successful documentary filmmakers of all time. He's an icon of the left, but in this shocking movie, he criticizes the schemes and scams of the global warming industry itself, savaging heroes, including Al Gore. Here, take a quick look at this clip. You might ask yourself, how could men destroy what remains of nature to enrich themselves? Well, that's why they're billionaires and you're not. <laughs> the takeover of the environmental movement by capitalism is now complete. Environmentalists are no longer resisting those with the profit motive, but collaborating with them. Your take on that, about $100 million pre-tax from a country that, has, that bases its wealth on fossil fuels, isn't there a bit of hypocrisy in that? Uh, well, I get the criticism. 
I just disagree with it. I'm proud of the transaction. You couldn't find for your business a more sustainable choice. What, what is not sustainable about it? Because it is backed yeah. by fossil fuel money. I get it. I get it. I, I, I get it. The only reason we've been force-fed the story climate change plus renewables equals worse saved is because billionaires, bankers, and corporations profit from it. And it's not just political banter. They ask basic questions like the amount of energy and effort and mining and fossil fuels to make a wind turbine or a solar panel. There's no way it makes sense financially, but there's no way it makes sense environmentally. Take a look at this clip. The sun is renewable, but the solar arrays are not. Oh, come on. There's got to be something renewable. So, Glass is renewable. <laughs> Glass is not renewable. Iron's renewable. <laughs> Aluminum? That's renewable. I recycle my, <laughs> my pop can, soda cans. I know it's renewable. Yeah, the problem with all of these materials is that it takes an incredible amount of energy to mine and process all of the materials that go into building something like this. You use more fossil fuels to do this than you're getting benefit from it. You would have been better off just yeah. burning the fossil fuels in the first place instead of playing pretend. Now, I think there are obviously still flaws with this film, but it says things that were unsayable, and maybe that's Michael Moore's strength. He's the only one who could call out the left on this because of his impeccable left-wing bona fides. He's a hero on the left, the hard left, the progressive left, the Bernie Sanders left. Well... You can imagine the reaction to this film, Planet of the Humans, has been outraged on the left. Here is a lengthy rant by the leader of Canada's tiny Green Party, Michael Moore's dreadful, ill-informed, unhelpful film. <laughs> oh, you know, he's on the right track. Well, joining us now to talk about this and what it means and the strengths of this movie and its weaknesses is our friend Mark Morano. He's the boss of Climate Depot.com and he joins us via Skype. Hey, Mark, great to see you again. Hey, thank you, Ezra. Happy to be here. Uh, yeah, what can I say? I mean, this is a, a tour de force by Michael Moore. Uh, and we knew this movie was coming. I think it was last summer, last fall. Michael Moore had given some interviews uh, and had been shown at some film festivals. But he had actually talked about how he didn't know about solar and wind and how unreliable and how it couldn't replace fossil fuels. And he got a lot of flack then, but not too much. It sort of faded. The movie's out now, and it is just lays waste. And my favorite clip uh, is the uh, scene with Richard Branson and Al Gore. And I don't know where they got this. It was at some you know, renewable energy thing. And they had one of the, you know, it was one of those fake media interviews, but they asked him, is Al Gore a prophet? Uh, asked Richard Branson sitting next to Al Gore. And then and he goes, it depends how you spell it. And they all have a big belly laugh. To me, that encapsulates what Michael Moore was able to uncover. He goes through people like Bill McKibben, the hero of the climate movement, personal friend of Al Gore, is shown grappling, hemming, hawing, can't think of who funds uh, 350.org. He's asked repeatedly. Again, I'm not even sure what media outlet. I don't recognize. These are like, you know, these must be like indie media on the left, progressive that I've never even heard of. But the, the reporter's actually grilling them, and, and Bill McKibben can't name a single donor, or, you know, and he, and he can't, and she keeps saying, you don't know who funds you? Uh, it's an amazing film. However, and I think you alluded to this, 
the issues are he he believes in climate alarmism severely and his solution is essentially overpopulation less people uh, and i think that's where the movie fails but if you just take that out of the equation which isn't that big of a part and focus on the fact that this is quote friendly fire from someone on the progressive left aimed at the progressive left this is amazing aha moment for many on the progressive left, particularly Michael Moore and his producer, uh, Jeff Gibbs, who uh, is the voice you hear in the movie. Yeah. You know, that Branson moment, you're so right on that because he poses as this organic, woke hero. The guy's got an international airline. I mean, I admire him for his capitalism, but I admire him for his chutzpah, uh, for him to pose as a friend of the environment. Uh, first, take a quick look at that clip that you're referring to. Is Al Gore a prophet? <laughs> um, uh, I just spelled prophet. <laughs> you know, there's a saying only Nixon can go to China. That is, Nixon was so strong on anti-communism, it's really how he made his name, uh, that when he went to communist China to do a deal to break Mao Zedong and others away from the Soviets to realign them against Russia, that's such a dangerous, risky thing. But people said, well, we know that Nixon, of all people, won't go pro-communist. He's got to be smarter than that. He was trusted because he was a right-winger on communism. I think that's the same thing here. I mean, if you look at Michael Moore, from Roger and Me, his antique uh, you know, GM movie to Fahrenheit 9-11, Bowling for Columbine, his anti-gun moving, Trump land, like the guy really is a hero to the left. There's no pet cause he hasn't championed. So he has really 20, 30 years of goodwill. And for him to deploy that at Al Gore, at all these heroes of the left, it really would be as shocking as if I came out for a carbon tax and announced I was transgender. Like it's that kind of shock value. What do you think happened? Do you think he's just a universal skeptic and he just hated the fact these billionaires were, were tricking everyone? Do you think he's just a perpetual dissident and he wanted to fight the power and he realized the powerful were the Al Gores? What made him flip? Well, I think you I think you hit directly on it. First of all, Michael Moore uh, went to Cuba and all he could talk about was how great Castro's literacy rates were and how great the healthcare system was. That gives you an idea of his bona fides on the left. I mean, this guy, you can't get more respect. He also, by the way, and this is interesting because I think there's an honest part. He honestly believes what he presents, meaning he, in 2016, was one of the few on the progressive left. I mean, the progressive left and the mainstream were convinced Donald Trump would never win. Michael Moore called it early on and said that everything he sees, Trump's going to win. So he has that streak in him. Now, I think it's exactly what you say, Ezra. He realized early on, and if you watch the, even up to the first like 10 minutes of the movie, he talks about the Obama stimulus, the $90 billion, the things that led to the Salandra and the other debacles. But he has all the clips and interviews and, and, and Richard Branson and others at the time, Al Gore and President Obama bragging about all the money that's going to come and all the all the energy and how fossil fuels are finished. And this is they're going to just take over. And this is all they've ever waited for. Blah blah blah. And essentially, bupkis happened. OK. And Michael Moore knows that. So what happened was and I think this is exactly what you say. He doesn't like 
big corporations, concentrations of wealth. And so he sees the green energy scam for exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. The Soros, the Bransons, the Al Gores, all of these into this, the, the so-called renewable fields. And they, he sees all the con that they're doing and who's profiting and who's making money and who's not delivering on their promises. And for his troubles, Ezra, Josh Fox of Gaslin, Michael Mann of the Climate Gate, United Nations hockey, hockey stick fame, infamous, signed petitions, pressured the distributor. For a brief time, there was the distributor had agreed to pull the movie. And then because of pressure against censorship from many conservatives, they decided not to pull the movie. You have the left going bonkers right now trying to censor Michael Moore's message. Yeah, but now I think that, I mean, I, I remember that clip you're talking about when, when Michael Moore early on called Trump uh, a winner. I want to play a very quick clip of a speech he gave in Michigan um, in 2016 before the election. And here's what this said. And I've played this clip a dozen times. I haven't played it recently. But what it showed me is that for all his partisanship, and I remember when Michael Moore had a pride of place at the Democrat nomination, I think it was in 2000, I forget what year it was, but he was a real Democrat party hero, but he was not so blinded by partisanship. He, there's this little anecdote he told about Trump going right in to talk to the CEOs in Detroit, uh, saying that if, that they'd better bring their manufacturing back to America, and if they didn't, he'd punish them or they should be punished, He's, he could get past any aesthetic differences he had with Trump to realize, oh my God, maybe this guy's right. And he, uh, let me just play the clip for you because I thought it was so telling. Take a look at this. Whether Trump means it or not is kind of irrelevant because he's saying the things to people who are hurting. And it's why every beaten down, nameless, forgotten working stiff who used to be part of what was called the middle class loves Trump. He is the human Molotov cocktail that they've been waiting for. The human hand grenade that they can legally throw into the system that stole their lives from them. Here's what I take away from that. I dislike Michael Moore in about five different ways, but I think he has a grain of intellectual honesty. Even though I think he's wrong, I think his stats are often wrong. Any guy who could say, you know, Trump is talking to the working man in a way the Democrats aren't, that's honesty. And I think when he looks at that oleaginous Al Gore who took all the money from Qatar to buy his TV network, when he sees that, I think there's enough authenticity deep, deep, deep hidden <laughs> within him that he said, I am not a sucker. I am not going to be suckered by these guys. That's my theory, that he has a scrap of honesty, and he said, I'm going to call out these swindlers. I think you're right. In fact, where I think this is very consistent with Michael Moore, he doesn't like that sort of nexus of government, corporate, um, uh, basically aligning to what he sees as to screwing the little guy, crushing the little guy. So what happened here, he followed the money. And if you go back, if, you know, I remember CBS News even reported you know, the Obama stimulus package went to nine out of 10 or some high number, 80 percent Democratic donors to Obama. He could see a, uh, a financial scheme uh, when one was presented and he saw it with green energy. And then to have his producer go out and, and some of the most just 
powerful scenes in the movie aren't with these big political figures. They're with the low-level activists at these demonstration events with solar panels and windmills out in the desert, you know, and, and even in parking lots and other places where they do all the flashy stuff and they mention all this great stuff about renewable. They start asking in Michael Moore's film inconvenient questions, and then the, the, the advocates, the salesmen for solar and wind are admitting on camera, well, you know, this would only be enough to power a few houses, even though we're taking up all these football fields, et cetera. And then they talk about how, how much it is to make the solar panel. At one point in the film, they refer to the green energy as a pretend energy. Uh, you know, kind of like we can pretend to get energy from these compared to fossil fuels. So it is just phenomenal that someone on that side, he joined someone named the name of Michael Schellenberger, who actually was one of the architects of the Green New Deal and was all excited with Obama's you know, stimulus package. And he, too, became disillusioned. He is now he's still much not as much as more, but still believes in a climate you know, that we have to deal with climate, that it's a problem. But he is now against the entire green energy movement. And he's actually spoken very highly of this movie, uh, Michael Schellenberger. So he's a major figure on the left, Time Magazine's Hero of the Environment. So Michael Moore is not alone in this transition. So I would tell my fellow climate skeptics out there, support Michael Moore. I know a lot of people are still attacking him for his overpopulation, for his climate alarmism. Let's look past that. And let's embrace him because he's not going to have many friends on the left after this. Yeah, you're so right. And I agree with you. He still accepts the premise that there's a problem with too many people, even though the movie's called uh, Planet of the Humans. I mean, listen, I think humanity is the best thing about the Earth. And I don't think we're actually overpopulated. I think, you know, actually there's more people eating better food and more nutrition now than ever in history. Um, I, I think that that's, that's sort of a gloom and doomism that's been around since the Club of Rome 50 years ago. But put aside those deeper ideological things. As you point out, at least he is taking on the false, the, the hucksters, these people with the snake oil salesmen saying, I deeply support your belief that there's a problem, so buy my carbon credits, signed Al Gore. So at least he's taking on the charlatans, and that's really the front line. I think, though, that he's doomed. Because oh, although I'm... he has a following and he has an authenticity, he is so small compared to the various forces he's going up against who have billions, billions of dollars. And filmmakers, well, Al Gore's the one who got the Nobel Prize and the Oscar, and so he's going up against an army of propagandists I think he's going to lose this one. He's going to be unpersoned, much like the co-founder of Greenpeace, Dr. Patrick yeah. Moore, has been erased from Greenpeace's history because he's a skeptic of them. I admire what he's done here. I think it was career suicide. I do. I mean, if you could see the reaction. I'm, I'm following this on Twitter. Josh, um, Josh Fox, who did Gasland has been leading this charge against uh, Michael Moore's film. But the comments, people are saying, I've been a lifelong fan. I've loved everything you've done. I can no longer tolerate this. I will have nothing to do. You have destroyed yourself in my eyes. People emotional, people almost in tears and crying, mean, just vicious, upset. And I think you're absolutely right. But I don't think Michael Moore really cares. I think I don't think he wants that kind of adulation from the left. I think he'll be happy to sort of be a curmudgeon of everyone. Uh, and I think... Who knows? I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in my book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, focusing on politically left wing 
scientists and commentators who, uh, who, who reverse themselves and are now skeptical of global warming. I don't think it's a very far stretch once man realizes the con of the Bill McKibbins, of the Al Gores, of the Richard Bransons, of the George Soros, and all these that are funding this stuff. Once you realize that, you start looking into the science and you realize, hey, wait a minute, the same people pushing climate alarmism are the same people pushing solar and wind to replace fossil fuels and it ain't gonna happen in any, you know, in any technologically feasible way at any any time in the future that we can foresee. So once he starts unraveling it, I don't know how he can hold on to his other views. And you mentioned as overpopulation. I mean, the new problem is underpopulation. All many of the same people who were worried in the 70s and 80s of overpopulation have now reversed themselves and are looking at it as population stabilizes, uh, we're going to be facing a decline in population later this century based on latest projections. So the, the key to population, by the way, if you're worried, wealthier. The wealthier the country and the societies are, the less the, the, the population stabilize and actually end up declining, especially if you take out immigration. So it's an amazing thing. Wealth equals prosperity, health, life, stabilizing population. That's what you would want. Huh. Well, you know, um, I, I'm amazed by this turn of events. I think that maybe Michael Moore, at the end of the day, is a gadfly, a leader of the opposition, so to speak, who, um, you know, always wants to be on the outside. And I think society needs people like that. I think we have too many conformists. And even though I know that I disagree with him on so many things, including his past body of work and his underlying ideology, the fact that he has made the choice to take on his own team shows a, a, an honesty that I did not know he had in him, and uh, I'm impressed with it. Um, by the way, you mentioned Josh Fox, who's leading the charge against Michael Moore. I recall learning uh, when I was writing my book about fracking called Groundswell that Josh Fox was supported by the government of Venezuela, an OPEC country, in his movie Gaslands. So, um, it's no surprise to me at all uh, that Josh Fox is attacking Michael Moore. Josh Fox will work for cash, as so many of these activists will. Our, well, listen, it's very interesting. Last word to you. Is there, is there any advice you'd give to Michael Moore on what to cover next? Well, first of all, just on Josh Fox real quick. He, he, he did the absolute just pure propaganda showing the well water on fire, which was a known thing, you know, with uh, with, with well water and uh, going back 70 back to 1920s, 30s. So he did a whole con to try to scare people about fracking. But the advice to Michael Moore is very simple. You know, just keep following the evidence. And it is again, this isn't Michael Moore just did an opinion piece. He exposes them in this movie in the interviews and in the documents and in the uh, just following them and on camera, it's an embarrassment to watch. You feel bad for the renewable energy hucksters out there who've been selling all this nonsense. Uh, so my advice is just to stay strong, but he doesn't really need my advice. I mean, he's yeah. gonna do what he does and I think he'll like this. His, he's riding this controversy all the way to, I think it's 3 million viewers so far on YouTube just in the last few days for his film because of this controversy. Yeah. Well, very interesting. Great to catch up with you, Mark. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you, Ezra. Appreciate it. All right, right there you have it. Mark Morano, the boss of ClimateDepot.com. And we're going to embed that Michael Moore YouTube video on our website. Of course, as Mark and I both said, we don't agree with everything the man says, but to have a man of his station make those points is very rare indeed. So you can watch the whole movie elsewhere on our website. Stay with us. More Head on the Rebel.
on my monologue Friday about the war on civil liberties and how we're fighting back at the fightthefines.com, Rhea writes, it's Trudeau's assault on civil liberties just like his Chinese masters want. You know, I, it's so unnecessary, but because the public is worried and because they're trusting authority and because no one knows what to do, they're granting Trudeau permission to use his bullying authority. There have been a few attempts to push back. I'm, one of the only effective things I can point to Andrew Scheer about lately is that he spoke out against Trudeau's attempt to grab all legislative and spending power to rule by fiat till the year 2021. So there was a pushback at that. Even the media party thought Trudeau went too far. But his out-of-control spending, his deference to the globalists of the UN, I think Trudeau's going to take advantage of the situation to make everything worse. To me, the tip-off of that, the worst case, was Dominique LeBlanc's plan to bring in a ban to criminalize inappropriate chatter about the virus. I don't know if that'll ever see the light of day, but the fact they were thinking about it shows their mindset. Paul writes, this is madness. It's happening in Ireland as well. No such thing as a civil liberties anymore. Yeah, I just can't get over the fact that the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, look at their middle name, Civil Liberties, they're not finding these cases. They say they're going to do some report about it after the fact. That's like saying, I'm not going to save your life. I'll do an autopsy after you're dead. On my interview with Derek Sloan, Steve writes, I don't think it's racist to criticize her, Teresa Tam. It has nothing to do with her race. It's her manner. No, it's not even her manner. Her manner suggests a style or, or a tone or a personality. It's not her manner. I don't care about her manner. Um, you know, people said Stephen Harper was a cold fish. I don't care. I'm not looking for a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I just want someone who's going to give me good advice. I don't care what they look or sound like, what their manner is. Um, in fact, her manner is rather cool and cold and, and clinical. I don't care. I don't, her manner doesn't bother me one bit. It's that she takes instructions from the World Health Organization. Her instructions are colored by the interests of communist China. And she's telling us things that are such obvious BS. And my, my big point is showing the Spanish flu from 1918-1919 was to show you how all of her advice flies in the common sense of our own great-grandparents. I mean, she said foolish things. Brian Jang writes, no, it's not racist. A lot of Asian people want her fired. It's not sexist either. A lot of women want her fired too. Well, exactly. I think one of the most effective world leaders in the face of this Wuhan coronavirus has been the president of Taiwan, who happens to be an Asian woman. That's not why she's so good at it. She's good at it because she doesn't trust communist China, because Taiwan has been expelled from the World Health Organization. So they learned, A, don't trust the World Organization, Health Organization, and B, you're on your own, make your own decisions. So the fact that they freed themselves mentally, politically, psychologically, financially from the World Health Organization means they could actually take care of their people. They could have quarantines for incoming people from China. They could build a national mask production and then a system to distribute the masks so the Chinese don't buy them all up and bring them back to the mainland. That is the best countervailing uh, role model to Theresa Tam. Uh, President Tsai of Taiwan or Theresa Tam of Hong Kong, both are ethnically Chinese. I love President Tsai. Tam's got to go. It's got nothing to do with gender or race. 
its brains and heart and loyalty to our country rather than the globalists. President Tsai loves her country and it shows. I think Trudeau and Patty Haidu and Theresa Tam are literally obeying the UN's orders and that's killed people. Well, folks, that's the show for today. I hope you join in tomorrow. I don't know what you thought of me about me going deep on the Spanish flu. I learned so much about the plague and Marseille, France, um, when I was doing some work on my presentation tomorrow. I do hope you'll come back and tell me what you think of it. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom. Mm-hmm.